This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining the show. On today's episode, we have a flurry of bad news that hit on Monday all at the same time. Nancy Pelosi set a deadline for this coronavirus stimulus talk. The markets were expecting a chance of something happening. And this would be a big boost to the economy. It'd be a big boost to the stock market as well. And now there's skepticism that this deal is going to fall through. So we don't know what's going to happen. We're going to hear really soon if they are able to make a deal. But on top of that news of the growing skepticism about the stimulus, we also have infectious disease experts saying that the darkest period of the coronavirus pandemic is still yet to come. So we're just in the midst of it. We're about to hit the actual worst point of this pandemic. It does seem to be following that trend. You can see that we're trending right back up to the biggest point that we've had so far. Over 70,000 new cases a day in the United States. 70,000 a day. This is not what we want to be hearing. So with that news combined together, the fact that the stimulus may not happen until early next year, and the fact that we're having increased coronavirus cases, we're having a market sell-off. Every index, every broad index was down across the board. So we're going to go through this news and talk about why I think investors, for the most part, should ignore all of this. You should put it to the side, not worry about the elections coming up, not worry about the economy specifically right now, and instead stay invested. I'm going to be going over that in this episode, as well as we're going to take a look at my portfolio and the different holdings in it, and I'm going to reveal the stock in my portfolio that has performed the absolute best over the last two years. This is a dividend stock. It has gone up a lot in the past two years, and it's not one that you would expect. It is not a tech stock. So I'll be revealing that in this episode as well. And of course, I have to remind you, we do have a Patreon. It helps support the channel. It's $6 a month. Cancel anytime. You can try it out today for free. It gives you access to a community discord of thousands of active members. It's a pretty active community, as well as you get exclusive content. You get access to a dividend tracking website. You can try that out. There's a link in the description if you're interested. Okay, well, I won't keep you waiting. So let's jump right into my portfolio and I'll go over my best performing company. Now, I started this portfolio way back in December of 2017. It was a good time to start investing right then, but unfortunately, I didn't have a lot of money to invest in the portfolio. I had just recently purchased a home. With the home, I put a massive down payment on it, which was most of my liquid money at the time. So I didn't have a lot of money to work with, and what I did was slowly deposited money in to build up this account. And you can see the growth of it over time. If you make it a priority that every time you receive money, every time you receive a paycheck, you continually add to your portfolio, it will grow over time. Even if the market is really choppy, if things like coronavirus happen, you still will most likely make money. Most of the time the market goes up, that's just the case. Over time, it mostly goes in an upwards direction. If you stay invested for a good amount of time, it's likely that you're going to make money. So I have 33 holdings split up in a bunch of different sectors. And the holding that has done the best is in consumer. It is a consumer holding. The company that has done the best is Target. That is my best performing holding since the beginning of this portfolio. On a money-weighted return, I'm up 216%. But money-weighted is a little confusing the way that they do the math. If we go to the holdings page, this is a time-weighted return. It doesn't factor in dividends, but it does tell us the capital appreciation. 
Just with Target, over the past two years, I'm up 80.58%, and that's not counting dividends. So that's just capital appreciation, and Target does pay a quarterly dividend. My cost basis is $868, and the current value is $1,558. Now, there's a couple things I want to point out with this investment in Target, things that I think we can learn from it. The first thing is that you do not have to invest in some obscure, unique company in order to have tremendously good returns. I'm up 80% in Target in two years, and Target's a name brand. It's a company everybody's heard of, everybody knows about. It's not some obscure biotech company. It's not some chip maker. It's not some robotics company or AI. It's just Target, a company everybody's heard of, yet I've had 80% gains on it in two years. This tells me that you do not have to go out of your comfort zone and invest in obscure companies in order to have really good returns. The next thing that I would point out is that many of the companies that have performed the absolute best in my entire portfolio are companies that I simply like. They're companies that are my favorite ones to use their products or to use their services. For instance, Costco is one of my favorite all-time companies. I spend a lot of money there every single year getting groceries and shopping and everything. Costco sells a lot of different stuff. It's one of my favorite places to go, and it's turned out to be a great investment as well. I can say the same thing about Home Depot. That's a company that I like the shopping experience. I like going and looking at all the equipment. Anytime I'm doing home projects, that's the place that I go. So I bought Home Depot, and that's been another company that's performed really well. Target's in that same category. The reason that I originally chose Target is because anytime my wife would decide where we would shop, she would end up picking Target. So I thought, there's a draw to this company. People like shopping there. And my wife, it turns out, is not unique in liking to shop at Target. CNBC recently came out with a video examining why so many people like shopping at Target. What do they do in their stores that make it so appealing to consumers to go to? And it's not by accident. I literally go to Target for everything. I really love Target. The whole store just makes us calm. I love everything about Target. I'm at Target right now. It makes me so happy just to be in the parking lot. Target has revolutionized the entire shopping experience. From the width of the aisles and the weight of the shopping carts to the smell of Starbucks coffee and the placement of dollar bins. Like many technology companies with software, Target has taken the same iterative approach to continually improving their business. She mentions that they focus on the specifics of the weight of their shopping cart. That's something that you might subconsciously notice is that they have those nice plastic shopping carts that are really well balanced and they're easy to push. It's a little bit better experience than the old traditional heavy metal shopping cart with the bad wheel. Target doesn't have those. They have a better shopping cart. That might seem silly, but that's one thing that might subconsciously make you choose Target over another company. Coffee has another upside too, caffeine. They're more excited. They're gonna buy more. They're gonna stay there longer. They don't get tired quickly. They put Starbucks in their stores because it gives a nice aroma and it also gives people caffeine. So when they're shopping, they have more energy and they stay around longer. I think this is a big factor in why these companies have done well. They're companies that I enjoy their products and services. And if you really like something, you like a company, you like the products they sell and the services that they offer, you're probably not alone in that. There's probably a lot of other people that think the same way you do. So Target's a company that I like, and it's one that's performed really well because it turns out a lot of other people like it as well. Now, the next thing that I'll mention that I think we can learn from this performance of Target is the dramatization of the effects of Amazon. Amazon has been called the retail killer that they are the ones going and like a kill spree, they're taking out retailer after retailer. And this has been true for a few companies like JCPenney and Sears, 
But I think Amazon killing off other retailers has been heavily dramatized. We have articles like this from Vox saying Amazon was already powerful. The coronavirus pandemic cleared the way to dominance. Amazon is going to dominate retail. But have we seen that? In the last two years as well, Walmart, one of the primary competitors to Amazon, has also performed very well. It's gone up 55%. Walmart isn't suffering because of Amazon. If we look at Home Depot, another competitor to Amazon, another big retailer, it's done well over the past couple years. It's up 78%. If we look at Best Buy, Best Buy has also done well. And this is a company that focuses on electronics. How has a company that has focused on retail electronics been able to compete with Amazon and their dominance? Well, Best Buy has found a way to compete with Amazon. We can go on. We have Lowe's that similarly has done well over the past couple years. And then we could go to other companies like Nike. Nike used to sell on Amazon and they decided, you know what? We don't want Amazon taking a cut. So we're just going to sell directly from our website and pull all of our products off of Amazon. And it was successful. Nike's stock has soared over the past year as their earnings have continually grown, despite the fact that they have moved from Amazon. This article from CNBC says that brands don't need Amazon. Nike's departure could prompt others to leave as well. So that's the last thing that I'll point out, is I think that Amazon's dominance has been overstated and people think it's going to kill off every other retailer. We've seen evidence over the past couple years that that's not the case. Most of them that have been heavily affected by Amazon were businesses that were slowly going away anyways. Amazon just sped up their decline. But other companies like Target, Nike, Home Depot, Costco, you could include Walmart and Lowe's as well. Those companies are doing just fine against Amazon. Now, moving on, this week, the markets have not done well. The Dow Jones dropped 400 points on Monday as stimulus uncertainty grows and coronavirus cases rise. So we have two different dynamics going on, both of them not good. What could help the economy, as well as the stock market, is a coronavirus relief bill. Nancy Pelosi put a deadline on it for Tuesday. So we're going to find out today whether they make that deal or not. But I have my concerns about this. I think that it might be unlikely for them to make a deal because there's so much politics at play here. We are 15 days from election, and this is the primary thing that both Democrats and Republicans are focused on, is winning the election. They're not primarily focused on getting the coronavirus relief bill out. That's something that's being used as a political tool from both sides. So I think there's going to be resistance in getting that passed before the elections. I think it will be unfortunate if no deal is made before the elections, because Jerome Powell has warned us about the economic consequences that could happen if we don't give enough support. At this early stage, I would argue that the risks of policy intervention are still asymmetric. Too little support would lead to a weak recovery, creating unnecessary hardship for households and businesses. Over time, household insolvencies and business bankruptcies would rise, harming the productive capacity of the economy and holding back wage growth. By contrast, the risks of overdoing it seem, for now, to be smaller. Even if policy actions ultimately prove to be greater than needed, they will not go to waste. The recovery will be stronger and move faster if monetary policy and fiscal policy continue to work side by side to provide support to the economy until it is clearly out of the woods. Jerome Powell's saying there, give more stimulus relief. That's what he's directing the government to do. His advice is that there's far more risk in not giving enough than there is in giving too much. And I agree with him. The frustrating part about this is that what Congress does best is take people's money through taxes. They take all of our money through taxes, every single paycheck. And then the one time that we could really use some of that money back during a recession, political arguments hold them back from making a deal. 
And if a deal's not able to be made, because of the elections, it'll take a long time before another stimulus. It says, quote, if this does not get done before the election, I am afraid the soonest we would be able to get any kind of COVID relief is well into February. That was Representative Tom Reed. He's saying it's going to take February of next year if they don't make an agreement right now. Now, with all this negative news culminating on one day, you can see the effects it has on our portfolios. Mine's down $2,400 just on Monday. That's 1.9%. That's a lot of money. I would like to have $2,400, but I'm not too concerned about this. I've gone through the companies I own, and I feel that most of them will survive a prolonged shutdown and a prolonged coronavirus environment for a very long time. I'm planning on a slow recovery, and I've positioned my portfolio for that. And I think most people have. I think most people already have their finances and their investments positioned with the anticipation for a prolonged recovery. So I plan on staying fully invested, even with volatility like today. Moving on, I have to mention this story that surfaced on Reddit. This is a user that posted his journey with options. It started off with him doing trading. He says, options are great until they are no more. After many years of regular trading, I decided to try options. It went great until it didn't. Now I'm scarred for life and planning to take a long break from the stock market. Some very expensive lessons learned. I'll put his portfolio value timeline on the screen. This is over a two-year period. His portfolio started off being worth around two hundred to $300,000. So he had a good chunk of change in there. $200,000 is a lot of money. Then he started to trade options. And you can see that his account rapidly started to grow in value. It hit a peak of $1.8 million. He almost had $2 million from options, but he kept his positions open and then things reversed. Quickly, his account value dropped vertically and he ended up losing all of his money, including his initial investments. So the two dollars to $300,000 initially is gone as well. His account value is now zero. Now he talks about this experience on the forum. One person says, the dude is probably still a millionaire. If not, then he is dumb for not taking that profit while he could. He responded and said, I'm not a millionaire. And as for dumb... It's easy to talk if your portfolio has never seen those numbers before when it's moving up by 200k a day, greed creeps in. Now I realize that there's safer ways to use options, but I see so many tragic events with people's financial lives. Really tragic events. I don't doubt that this guy is scarred for life from this event. Imagine losing all of your money that you've been investing with and working with for years and losing it all instantly. That would scar anyone And I'm sure that everybody would want to take a break from the stock market after that. That can be completely avoided if you avoid using options like this. Avoid doing things to try to make so much money in such a short amount of time. I'm always a fan of long-term investing. I think buying productive companies that are positioned well for the long term is the way to go. Okay, let's get to some emails. The email address is joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com. And you can email in any questions that you have or subjects that you want to talk about. It can be about personal finance, investing, anything that you're curious about. The first question is from another Joseph. He says, hi, I wondered why you carry such a large percentage of tech stocks in your portfolio when most of them don't pay dividends. Thanks for producing such great content and sorry if this has already been answered somewhere. This has been a question that I've been asked a few times and I want to clear some things up here. So first of all, every tech company that I have pays dividends. So they all pay dividends, but more importantly, I've been thinking about the sector of tech and how I think that that's a really dumb label for a sector. I don't think it makes any sense. You have a tech sector? What does that mean? What is a tech company? It used to be just computer software companies, 
But now it seems like any company that uses modern technology is now a tech company. The products can vary widely. You have Apple that sells hardware, iPhones, as well as a lot of different software. So they're a tech company. But you also have companies like Amazon that they're a retail outlet online. They're a tech company. You also have companies like Google that their main product they sell is ads. They sell ads to you, but they're a tech company. You have companies like Netflix that their main product that they sell is movies and TV shows and documentaries and comedy specials, and they're a tech company. Think about that. Netflix is a tech company that the product they sell is movies and TV shows. So when I look at how we label tech companies, it seems like it's starting to mean companies that have modern ways of distributing their products. That's all a tech company is. They have a modern technology-focused way of distributing their content distributing their products. It doesn't matter what the product is. The New York Times is really a tech company. Look at what it does. It has content. They have authors and writers and people that create content and they distribute it through technology. That's a tech company. The same could be said for the Wall Street Journal. So now the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times are both tech companies. You could even say going along with this that Disney is a tech company. Because now it has Disney Plus, which is a streaming service, and that functions, as far as the technology goes, the same way that Netflix does. It distributes the content in the very same manner. So is Disney now partially a tech company? Probably, with the way that we're defining these terms. So I'm looking at this, and I'm seeing tech as a sector, and the way that the media and the way that we've all decided to categorize this, I think, is erroneous. It doesn't make sense. To put everything into tech, meaning a company that just has a modern way of distributing content or distributing its products, that doesn't make sense. That's what most companies should be doing. Most of them should be moving to modernized ways of distributing their product. So it doesn't make sense to me. I think that naturally, if that's the way that we're defining tech, tech will grow until it encompasses almost every company. I think that it will encompass most of them. But I really think that what we're looking at is categories. That's what we should be focused on in terms of diversity. We have categories of companies like online retail. We have ad revenue companies. We have content creation companies. We have financial companies. And that's the way that I think they should be organized. So I've actually considered this in my portfolio. Rather than organizing the companies by tech and consumer, I'm thinking about organizing them by categories of really what they sell. And I would reorder them right now, but it's difficult to do an M1. You have to kind of sell the holding and buy it back in another pie, which is cumbersome. So I'm waiting until they come out with a better way to reorganize pies where I don't have to do any of that. So that's something I've been thinking about. I think that the category of tech company is really meaningless. It doesn't mean much. So if it makes up 50% of my portfolio or 100% of my portfolio, that doesn't mean that my portfolio is not diversified. If you look at the actual companies, even if they have modern ways of distributing their product, they could be in completely different categories. Raul says, hi, Joseph. I am a university student and I'm a software engineer. I read a lot of financial books, watched a lot of your episodes, and I have 3K invested in dividend growth investing. I had a basic question. Many books suggest don't borrow money, create it to increase assets and reduce liabilities. Rich Dad, Poor Dad goes on to say, never take a loan for your house so you can pay yourself first. I am curious. What are your thoughts on taking a loan for your own house or did you buy it by investing? Would be very interested to hear you elaborate on this. Ryle, this is a good question. I bought my first home in 2013 and I bought it for $150,000 and I paid $30,000 down. So my actual mortgage was $120,000. 
That is a very small mortgage, especially in today's terms where home prices have gone up so much. I was paying like $700 a month for my mortgage. So it wasn't the nicest place. It was a pretty old home. It was like at least 50 years old. So it was an older place that had been refinished a couple times, but we enjoyed it. We actually liked living there. It was a nice small home. It was a very low mortgage. It was a pretty stress-free place to live. I did use some debt to purchase that home and it did appreciate in value quite a bit. I sold it for $70,000 more than I purchased it. So when I sold it, I took out my original investment, the $30,000 plus the $70,000 that it appreciated. And then I put that money into another home along with a bunch of savings. So my next home that I purchased is the one that I'm currently living in. It was about $375,000, around $375, and I put $175,000 down. So I put an enormous down payment on this house specifically because I wanted to have a low monthly mortgage. I wanted to have that same feeling of having a stress-free living. I didn't want to worry about my mortgage payment. And since purchasing this house, and even after putting such a large down payment on it, I've chosen to pay off my debt aggressively. So even after paying that much down, I'm still making continual principal payments on my mortgage and reducing it over and over again. And I think that I'll be able to have my house completely paid off by 2021. That's the goal, to have it completely wiped out, no debt on the mortgage by 2021. I know that there's smarter things technically you could be doing with your finances. You could refinance and get a lower interest rate and then invest that money in the stock market, and it has a higher expected return. All of that good stuff that people can argue, but I don't really care. I want to have zero debt. I want to have zero stress financially, and that's the way to do it. So that's my thoughts on it. I'm trying to pay off my home as soon as possible. If I have my mortgage paid off, I have no auto loans. I have no medical debt, no credit card debt, no school debt. If I'm completely debt-free, that is a pretty financially stress-free life. There's not much stress in your life if you have no debt in just financial terms. So that's the goal. That's the direction I'm heading towards. And I think I'll be able to accomplish that sometime next year. Maybe I'll make a video about it when I do, but I wouldn't completely rule out buying a home until you can pay for it. I think it's okay to use some debt to buy a house. Just try to do it as responsibly as possible. Okay, well, that's all for this episode. I appreciate all of you for watching. If you've made it this far, I'd appreciate it if you give the video a like. That helps out the algorithm as well as subscribing to the channel if you haven't already done so. And keep in mind, The Joseph Carlson Show is also on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and every other podcast service. So you can subscribe there for free. You can listen to the show on audio only if you want. And like always, I will check in with you guys next time.